Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Beautiful day here in Washington, D.C., but trade talks, well, they're getting rocky. President Trump promises a huge U.K. trade deal, including health service. Theresa May and Trump hinting at the future conflict over U.K. health care. Did you see that press conference with President Trump and uh, Theresa May earlier today? We'll break it all down. Meanwhile, China... China, did you see this? China warning citizens against U.S. travel because of the mass shootings. The back and forth between the U.S. and the Chinese has been somewhat remarkable. Plus, I'll take you to Capitol Hill, where I just came from, with Congressman David Cicilline. He's a Democrat from Rhode Island. He's the chairman of the subcommittee on antitrust of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, and he's looking to investigate big tech. What does that mean? Liz Harrington is a Republican National Committee spokesperson. She's going to call in to give us the Republican fallout and zeitgeist following that remarkable state dinner across the pond the other evening. Roger Fisk is here. It's his first time on the program. He's in studio, Democratic strategist, Obama administration alum, former senior aide of communication and policy for Senator John Kerry. And Brian Darling is back. He's the former senior communications director to Senator Rand Paul, founder of Liberty Government Affairs, and Shannon Pettypiece, my good friend, my workout buddy, Trade Talk. Trade Talk heating up across the pond, as they, as they say, with a very special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. Let's start with trade. Roger Fisk, Roger Fisk is Democratic strategist. Uh, he has also served in the Obama administration. He's the former senior aide to Senator John Kerry. Brian Darling's back, former comms director for Republican Senator Rand Paul, founder of Liberty Government Affairs. And Janet Pettypiece, who I want to start with, Bloomberg News White House reporter. All right, so we got this massive press conference with Theresa May as well as President Donald Trump. What would you make of the trade talk uh, between these two world leaders? Well, I guess I would just remind everyone that we're about two and a half years in, and we still don't really have a grand trade deal from any of these countries or trade negotiations that we've attempted. Uh, USMCA seemed to be the closest. Uh, that now seems to be on potentially on life support with talk about putting these Mexican tariffs in it. Um, really seems unlikely that's going to get past the House uh, before the elections. Uh, China trade talks have um, you know also gone on life 
life support, I guess I would say, in the past few weeks. So, uh, I mean, despite the president continuing to talk about how uh, he can strike a deal with the U.K. or Japan, where I was just um, a week ago, we really haven't seen any results from all that talk yet. President Trump at that press conference taking questions about what he will do with regards to increasing tariffs on Mexico. Here's President Trump at that press conference earlier today. We are going to see if we can do something, but I think it's more likely that the tariffs go on and we'll probably be talking during the time that the tariffs are on and they're going to be paid. Brian, I'm hard-pressed to find a Republican on Capitol Hill who, who likes these tariffs. Yesterday we heard from Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican from Iowa, but why is the president doing this when the party isn't on his side? Well, today Rand Paul made some statements that he has some heartburn over the tariffs. I, I think that the reason why is that um, these tariffs are more of a threat than anything else. I mean, they increase every month by 5%. I think it's a negotiating tactic to force Mexico to come to the table on immigration issues. I don't think I, maybe the first round will go in, in place, but I can't see them getting all the way up to 25%. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, he also has, your, your old boss is neck of the woods, he also has some political heartburn, Brian. Here's the Senate Majority Leader talking tariffs earlier. I think it's safe to say you've talked to all of our members. We're not fans of tariffs. We're still hoping that this can be avoided. So, Roger, is this an effort to get Mexico to get on board with USMCA and immigration or really just to shake things up for Democrats to bring Speaker Nancy Pelosi to the negotiation table to get her to get a vote on NAFTA 2.0? No, I don't think it's I don't think that there's any pattern um, of the president's activities that suggests that he sees the connective tissue between all of these things. It just is is erratic ricocheting of grievance over and over. And what's sad is that I think a lot of us have come to grips with the fact that he a doesn't know what he's doing and B really doesn't even have an appetite to learn how to do his job. But the idea that he is surrounded by people and no one can sit him down to lay, let him know exactly who pays tariffs. He talks about this, especially in the Chinese context, and I'm not looking to dodge the Mexican thing, but as if like the U.S. Treasury is just swollen with billions of dollars that are transferred from the Chinese government. And the idea that no one around him, like being good staff, and maybe Brian and I can agree on this, I being good it. staff is not the recipe uh, for you know, being popular with your boss is not the definition of being good staff. I feel this is a challenge. I'm going to find an area, Shannon, where I can get Roger and Brian by the time the show's over to get them to agree on what... Actually, I already found it. They agree on the New England Patriots, which is abominable. The The New England Patriots are the the worst team ever. I'm a Philly Eagles fan. Listeners of the show know that, but I'll get back on message here. Christine Barada, our EP. Beautiful. Uh, Part of the country of the right to be wrong. (laughs) Okay. I see now I'm off message because I can't stand the New England Patriots. Here's Senator Dick Durbin talking about the impact to, to, to Roger's point about uh, consumers and the prices that consumers are going to pay on tariffs. Here's Senator Dick Durbin. There will be an impact on the price of goods coming back and forth between the United States and Mexico that is going to raise prices on consumers, it's going to cost American jobs, and frankly, it's going to hurt my farmers, to be very blunt with you, who have taken a beating already with this war with China. Shannon, Roger said he didn't want to, you know, it, it, it's hard to look at one trade front and ignore the other because it, it increasingly looks like they're all starting to blur together. And tomorrow at the White House now, we are getting word Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to be meeting at the White House 
with the delegation from Mexico. What can you tell us about that? Well, and I think actually the vice president is now oh, getting yeah. involved, um, going to lead it. I'm not sure Pompeo will still be there, but the vice president's sort of taking the reins of this. And the vice president's an interesting figure in all this because he comes from an ag state, a manufacturing state. He sort of operated in some sense as the liaison between the business community and the ag community and the White House because he's someone they know and sort of a familiar face. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing about this is that the number one selling point that the Trump campaign feels it has is the economy. And they do have a strong economy. Uh, that's not, And they are thinking that the calculation is that voters will look past Twitter Trump. They'll look past things they find unsavory or, or they disagree with him on because the economy is so good. So we now have enough time between now and the election for tariffs and a trade war to actually slow down the economy. Uh, that type of thing usually takes a while to, you know, the, the wheels of the economy take a while to slow down. But there is plenty of time now for a trade war with China to slow down the economy. But, but it so, hasn't yet. That's the thing. I mean, well, it this... takes time, though. It, it takes a little bit of while. But I mean, not to cut you off, but I, I mean, I would say, too, but nobody gets a tariff tax on the bottom of their receipt at Walmart. So to the extent oh, that the customers... It's going to be a question whether uh, consumers put that together, that these tariffs are going to be put together with a higher price at a grocery store or well, job cuts. Some somewhere. of the tariffs won't even go into effect. I mean, I honestly don't see these Mexican tariffs staying on for a long period of time. It's a way to leverage and pressure Mexico to do more in immigration. On China, the ultimate goal is to get rid of tariffs and to force China to stop stealing our technology and doing a lot of things that they shouldn't be doing that violate violate international trade norms. So ultimately, the goal is to get rid of these tariffs and have more free trade. We're just not there yet, and, and we have to leverage that. But ultimately, the economy is doing great right now. So I think the American people will be okay with it until they see some harm. The weird thing to me, uh, there's a couple weird things in all this, is one, <laughs> he, the pattern is he thinks once you do the press announcement, somehow the policy just kind of naturally falls into place, right? So June of 2017, he just says there is no threat from North Korea. Not, not that there's any diplomatic work or achievements or anything you could point to or touch that was actually achieved. And, and then he just starts to refer to it as an, an achievement, similar to the press conference where they just announced a series of kind of vague notions about immigration, and he's already referring to it as his plan, although it has not taken a legislative shape at all. This idea that the force of personality... Um, can do things irrespective of the machinery of diplomacy is completely off base. And no, no example is better than China. There's two sets of talks that go back to the Nixon administration, the Joint Commission for Commerce and Trade and the Security and Economic Dialogue that all involve commerce, treasury, ag, USTR, yeah. et cetera. Those are all dormant now, shut down as working groups by the Trump administration because somehow his chemistry with his counterpart is, and that combined with the press announcements is just going to work this stuff out somehow. Roger Fisk making his debut on Bloomberg Radio Sound On, Brian Darling stays, Shannon Petty piece sticks around. Coming up, we check in with Liz Harrington, Republican National Committee spokesperson, plus Congressman David Cicilline, Democrat from Rhode Island, taking on big tech. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. 
Parrot Time. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. President Trump is across the pond. He said it's Ireland tomorrow, I believe. The Mexico delegation, meanwhile, is meeting at the White House tomorrow with Vice President Mike Pence. Tariffs, tariffs, tariffs. But did you see the state dinner the other night? Did you see all the, the pageantry of the state dinner? Who needs to watch The Crown on Netflix when you've got these images coming out of Buckingham Palace? We've got an all-star panel to help navigate the politics, policy, and pageantry. Roger Fisk, his debut on the program, Democratic strategist, mm-hmm. former Obama administration alum. He also was a senior aide to then-Senator John Kerry. Brian Darling, former comms director for Senator Rand Paul, founder of Liberty Government Affairs. And Shannon Pettypiece, Bloomberg News White House reporter. Shannon, what did you make of all the state dinner the other day? You know, I, it's the second state dinner I've watched in like two weeks or something. We were, I was just in Japan. They did a state dinner there. Um, you Ooh, know, which is better? Which was better? Good question. I'm going to have to say watching on TV the UK state. The Queen knows how to do it. She does. I mean, the Japanese imperial family, don't mess around with them, but the Queen. I'm sorry. I've watched The Crown, you know. Did you see the gift that that the Queen gave to President Trump? It was like Churchill book? Yeah. What was up with that? Uh, I don't. I, I. Some people suggested there was some sort of trolling there with the Churchill book. Uh, I, I don't know the dynamics there. I'm not going to put any sort of trolling into the Queen's mouth. I can't <laughs> imagine that. Ryan, hey, I, I, I was going to take on the Queen. I like the toast. I, I was very. What did you that. like about the toast? I, I mean, there were there were long toasts. They were uh, a good little snippet of history. I thought, and I thought Donald Trump did a pretty good job with his toast. Um, you know, it's fun to watch it. I mean, it's fun to watch the president. We all expect him to do something inappropriate, but he didn't. Uh, I think he actually stood up and, and did a pretty good job. So, and you know, with, it, all, with all the naysayers, I think he, he stood up and did a great job for America. It's interesting on, on both these trips. There is, again, like the Twitter Trump, which on the <laughs> Japan trip, uh, you know, and, and right before landing in the you know UK, there is a Twitter Trump. And then there is the formal statesman Trump who goes to these events is is polite, is charismatic, uh, you know, is greeting people. And yeah, that's what I struggle with on the Japan trip, uh, you know, was kind of putting together these two worlds because we would see him and then he would go back to the residence and tweet. And it was a difficult. Was Meghan Markle Markle at the dinner last night? No, I think she's on maternity leave. She's off. Well, especially after the back and forth with the the tabloid stuff. Here's President Trump talking not about Meghan Markle, but about UK trade deal. Here's President Trump on trade in the UK. I think we'll have a very, very substantial trade deal. It'll be a very fair deal. And I think that uh, this is something that your folks want to do. My folks want to do and we want to do. And we're going to get it done. But in the next breath at that joint press conference earlier today with British Prime Minister Theresa May, he also doubled down on his support of Brexit. Here's President Trump on Brexit. I would think that it will happen and it probably should happen. This is a great, great country and it wants its own identity. Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist. You've worked in the Obama administration, former senior aide to John Kerry. I mean, this is a president who feels a lot of ideological parallels with his ascendancy into power and with Brexit, no? I think so. I think that's fair. Um, And I think even Bannon said uh, when the first Brexit vote happened that, you know, that that was um, very positive, fair wins for the for the Trump administration. Oh, go ahead. I know, you know, with this pin that I'm wearing, it's honoring the 
young men and women who served uh, in World War I 100 years ago. And when you think of the world, the, the framework that came out of that and the, and the prosperity and the peace, um, obviously with the challenge of World War II, but still the framework that was started after World War I and how that has served us, it's completely contrary to the president's vision of what this country has been through in the last 70 years. If you listen to the president describe the United States in the global context of the last 75 years, he portrays it as one of victim. He portrays it as one of, of doormat. He, he uses these words when by all accounts, the, the, the period after World War II leading into right now has been largely driven by and the U.S. has profited from a global order that essentially is of our – reflects a lot of the contours of what we desire it to be. Uh, I don't know why he needs to, you know, kind of put things in that in that victim kind of dynamic. He does it with himself all the time, as you'll see. He's both the chimp champion and the victim of virtually every situation. Um, but I agree with Brian, and I agree with what you're saying earlier. And it says something, I think, about our civic appetite that's kind of part of our DNA as Americans. When I see him actually, you know, string together six or seven coherent sentences that contain things like history and respect and gratitude and humility. I feel myself like as if I haven't drank water in 10 days and I've just stumbled on a cold gallon. Like, God, I, I, well, I, I miss what that's like. Instead of the fire hose uh, of conspiracy and grievance him, huh? that it, you know, wow. is, is what he does all the time. Are you going to vote for Trump? <laughs> no. He's Absolutely. coming around. I mean, when you heard uh, President Trump talking about Brexit, I think he's basically saying that the people – voted for it. The people wanted it, and the country should go along with it. And obviously, they've had a hard time figuring out how to get to that end point of uh, the actual Brexit. But, you know, you look at Trump's election, you look at Brexit, there is a rebellion against some of the problems that we've had with globalism. And the reaction to that is, is without question, the shadow uh, over the next uh, election cycle that we are about to experience. Roger Fisk stays, Brian Darling stays, Shannon Pettypiece stays. Coming up, Liz Harrington calls in, Republican National Committee spokesperson. Plus, we'll hear from Congressman David Cicilline. He's a Democrat from Rhode Island who is, well, launching an investigation into big tech. Download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also check us out on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. What a beautiful day here in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. 
Such a great song on such a beautiful day. Joining us on the phone line, Liz Harrington, Republican National Committee spokesperson. Liz, I know you're busy, so let's get right to it. The president's talking tariffs abroad, but a lot of Republicans are uneasy about the economic angst that this is injecting into the economy. What does the Republican Party, how does the Republican Party feel about that? Well, first and foremost, the president uh, wants to fix the crisis on the border, and he wants to use any tool in his arsenal in order to do so. And the fact is, Democrats in Congress aren't willing to fix, uh, close the loopholes in our asylum laws. And Mexico hasn't been willing. They've had a lot of talk, but they haven't been willing to address uh, core issues in their country, securing their border with Guatemala, accepting more asylum seekers on their own, and other issues. They haven't met those things. So this is another negotiating tactic, a thing that we really need Mexico to do and to uh, follow through on actions, not just talk. And this is clearly just another uh, negotiating tool for the president to use, because this is a crisis. This is a national security crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. We had just last week uh, over a 1,000 people arrested in one group crossing our country. And this is a huge problem. We can't keep track of these people once they're entered. Uh, the loopholes from uh, extreme left-wing uh, court orders as well have caused this, exacerbated this problem where they show up with a child that may or may not be uh, related to them, that may have been rented actually by a drug cartel who is exploiting our loopholes in the right. system, and then they're admitted back in the country. So we have to fix this problem in Mexico. It certainly is capable of helping us do so. Right. But Liz, what do, you, but what, do you, what do you say to people like Senator Joni Ernst or some of these other Republicans? Who I was on, I got to be candid here. In the past day and a half or so, I was up on Capitol Hill, and I'm hard-pressed to find a Republican lawmaker who who likes these tariffs not they, they agree with everything you just said on the issue of immigration but they're nervous that this negotiating tactic that you're saying is is going to negatively impact not just big businesses we always talk about big business but small businesses farmers medium-sized companies so what do you say to folks who are a bit uneasy about the economic impact of, of raising tariffs not just against Mexico but China Europe and uh, Japan uh, and, and a host of other countries well, look, we know there are varying views within the Republican Party on tariffs, but I would say, I would tell them, look at the evidence of how this president and this administration has used tariffs very tactfully uh, throughout this administration. We got Canada to the table uh, in order to get a good new trade deal with the USMCA, which again is sitting waiting for Democrats to act on Congress. But how did we get that deal? We got Justin Trudeau back to the table by implementing tariffs and threatening more on their dairy industry. And now those tariffs on steel and aluminum have been lifted, and we have a great deal that's awaiting Democrats to act in Congress. On China, well, we're also seeing progress that will be made. We're not going to relent. We're not going to let them take advantage uh, of the, the bad trade deals of the past. And we Americans know that the, our country has been taken advantage of, and we've had these 
series of uh, bad trade deals, whether it was letting China into the World Trade Organization, really let them take advantage of us and our economy, unfettered access to it for decades. And so this is a weapon that uh, the president is being is using not only to get our allies back to the table to get better trade deals for the United States, but also against our adversaries, because this is a, this is a tremendously important issue, and America is not going to be taken advantage of. We want a strong standing in the world, and this is one of the president's core issues that he ran on and he promised uh, he would deliver on, and so far he has. All right, Liz Harrington, I know you're busy. Appreciate your time. Republican National Committee spokesperson, that's Liz Harrington. Meanwhile, Shannon Pettypiece, listening to that interview, also tapping away on her phone. She's got a letter from Hope Hicks's attorney. Shannon, Bloomberg News White House reporter, what can you tell us? What's the latest? So um, we reported earlier today, uh, uh, Nadler, the head of the Judiciary Committee, had come out and said that the White House was blocking um, Hope Hicks and Annie Donaldson, uh, who is the uh, chief of staff to the White House counsel, uh, from turning over documents that they had in their possession uh, that the White House had requested they not turn over or requested really directed and told them not to turn over because they said those documents are the property of the White House and that they may be subject to executive privilege, uh, which is a sort of um, murky uh, part of the law where the president is entitled to have a certain level of confidentiality about internal deliberations and discussions um, that go on during his time, the president's time in the White House. So this is the now third time the White House has intervened. Um, Previously, it was with the White House counsel, Don McGahn, and essentially told the committee um, through uh, the lawyers for these individuals that if they want these documents, they're going to have to go to the White House to get them. And so not through hopes, not not, through hope. Right, right. I mean, in the letter from Hope Hicks lawyer, uh, he says that these White House documents were turned over to Hope Hicks to help her prepare Mm. for interview and testimony in the Mueller investigation, uh, but that they were turned over to her under those conditions, and it is not her prerogative or her lawyer's um, prerogative to be able to then turn them over to this committee, that these documents were given for a specific purpose. And they're abiding by those rules. Bottom line, we still don't know if, if she's going to testify. So that is the next question. Now, she can testify. There's nothing the White House can do to stop her from testifying about her time uh, in the uh, campaign. But again, they could ask her not to testify, asserting executive privilege, saying that the president is entitled to some level of confidentiality about conversations he has with his top advisors uh, and that they wish for her to refrain from discussing that. Fascinating. Coming up, more reaction with Roger Fisk, Brian Darling, and Shannon. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. You know, for a slow day... It is a jam-packed show. We've got an all-star panel, Shannon Pettypiece, Bloomberg News White House reporter, Brian Darling, former senior communications director to Rand Paul, founder of Liberty Government Affairs, and Roger Fisk, his first time on the program, hopefully not his last, a Democratic strategist, (laughs) Obama administration alum, worked for John Kerry, and I saw you bopping along to the boss, and you said he's a good guy. 
he had a, he had interactions, I guess, working in the Obama White House. You do with, with Bruce Springsteen. What is he like? Well, he go, he goes back with John Kerry for like thirty five years. So that's wow. why first a lot him. of Kerry rallies. Um, that's right. But no, in twenty twelve, when the debate started, basically the candidate went from you know doing about six cities a day to about one city a day because so, they hunker down and do debate prep. So a lot of us were farmed out to surrogates. Um, for that kind of 20-day stretch, and I was farmed out to uh, Springsteen. So, uh, well, what, did, a, what, um, a, what a tough <laughs> task! <laughs> yeah. So we had we had we had fun. He's a good guy, and I'm, you know, it, it was it was a lot of fun, and we got good work done, which is the most important thing. Well, you can kind of give us like a little Bruce story. What was he? I mean, what what was like? Tell us a a small little one-on-one Bruce anecdote. Uh, he got to the point where when I would brief him, basically what we were doing was we were putting together afternoon acoustic shows wherever he, his arena tour was going. So if he was in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, et cetera, yeah. we would sit, and he would show up. We'd get three, four, five thousand 5,000 people with like 48 hours notice, and then we'd you know, ring it with volunteers and do all the voter reg and all the activation and all the other stuff. So I'd brief him before he would go out because there'd be certain things that we'd want him to emphasize and things like that. And he got to the point where he would stand and then click his back heels and bow in front of me in, in a good-natured way um but but super super chill super easy his, his all he wanted was like four towels and four bottles of water that's like wow. it's one of the easiest like thunder red is one of my all-time favorite songs um pivoting back to policy let's talk big tech did you guys see this congressman david cicilline he's a democrat from rhode island he chairs the subcommittee on the house judiciary nadler shannon you know nadler the whole right i'm familiar yeah uh, there's a subcommittee on the judiciary which is antitrust and he wants to break up big tech he's launching this investigation and he says it's bipartisan and so i asked him about it here's here's congressman cicilline here he is there are a number of really important issues but this is an opportunity to use the investigative process, which will involve depositions and hearings. Subpoenas? And witnesses, and if necessary, subpoenas, uh, document requests, uh, roundtables. We'll bring in some of the best technologists in the country who have been doing a lot of thinking about what's the right response and what are the right answers. I think it's easy to identify the challenges and the big problems. It's hard to come up with the solutions. And so we want to be sure that we have the best data, the best thinking, the most accurate information. That's Congressman Cicilline. He's essentially saying that he's willing to use subpoenas, Brian Darling, Republican strategist, in order to uh, try to try to go after the big tech companies. I think this is a horrible idea. Why? I think it's a terrible idea. I think that Elizabeth Warren's battle to break up the uh, big tech companies is horrible. I mean, these are the leading companies. They're the leading our economy. I mean, you look at Amazon as... One of the biggest, it is the biggest, uh, or one of the biggest companies in the world. Apple is the biggest company in the world. Why go after all these companies that are creating jobs and are the leaders and basically leading the American economy in the world? It makes no sense. And I think that, you know, the Trump administration also looking at antitrust to go after these companies. I think that's a huge mistake. It makes no sense. Roger. I actually mo- agree with a lot of that. I, I wow, think I, I did it. I did it. I agree on something. No, this has been very, very amicable. Um, that said, you know, uh, the specter of regulation, I think, is good as a motivator in terms of their behavior. Um, but I, I don't think that government is well suited to do this because if you look at that that uh, hearing about six weeks ago and all the different kind of simian understandings of what algorithms are and things like that from some of the members of the House who just, I don't know, thought that this stuff is like either from the walls of caves or <laughs> that it came down from outer space or that computers generated computer code. Or like It's just all over the map. My point in that is that they're inherently ill-suited for this because – 
law and legislation and government is normally 20 to 25 years behind where technology is. So these folks are, are, are barely even qualified to talk about where we were in 95, let alone right. 2019. One glaring exception to this, and Roger, you and I have this in common, except with scooters. Because scooters are making a comeback. <laughs> Shannon, jump in here. Uh, I mean, I would, I would just add, putting aside what is right or wrong to do for the economy, uh, the politics of this uh, do kind of surprise me that you have uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, and candidates really emphasizing on this. Um, because that's not really where voters' minds are. I mean, when you look at the issues people are concerned about, uh, especially on the Democratic side, climate change, health care, um, you know, m- more broadly across the electorate, you see, um, you know, the economy, immigration, um, a- antitrust issues. You know, uh, that's not a fierce Thanksgiving dinner table conversation. But, but about it, those. It, it seems to fit into what many of the Democrats are running on, class warfare, hate the rich, tax them, the wealth tax we hear from Elizabeth Warren. A lot of the attacks on big companies not paying their fair share and these companies not paying enough. I mean, on the right, you hear many conservatives getting angry because of what's going on with uh, the censoring of conservative voices. And they're angry at big tech for different reasons. All right. You mentioned 2020. Roger, all right. Size up the Democratic 2020 field. What do you make of it right now? Being a front runner at this point point in the cycle is extremely dangerous. I think the narrative that this is Biden's to lose is only going to go so far. I would imagine that narrative flatlines in roughly October. The press is desperately going to want some kind of resurrection story, be that the fact that they have already put Beto to bed, um, be that the fact that um, Senator Warren is kind of doing more of a sleeper kind of organization-based um, campaign, not spending a lot on TV, for example, those kinds of things. Um, what will happen, I mean, the real fun starts essentially after Labor Day. Mm-hmm. You've been kind enough to reference my biography, but I always remember and I always share with people that in September of 2003, where we'll be in a couple months in this cycle, John Kerry was polling below Al Sharpton in Iowa. And 100 days later, he won the caucus. So what bubbles up and what makes it to a conversation, you know, like this in in Washington, D.C., and what's actually going on in the homes and the diners and the union halls of some of those early states are two very, very different things. I would say it wasn't just John Kerry, who was a uh, former, uh, you know, back in the polls, uh, one Donald J. Trump at one point, uh, maybe around this time, seemed like, you know, a, a Joe candidate. I mean, he, he once he took a lead, a strong lead, he never gave it up. And it was a wide open race. I mean, you had Chris Christie and Rand Paul at one point up front. But once Trump took over and took that lead, he never gave it up. And I, I think Biden may be in that position where it's going to be very hard to knock him out. 70,000, 70,000, 70,000. That's the number of folks who switch from Obama to Trump in the states like Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio. So, Roger, as, a, as, a, as an architect of these campaigns, how well, do I'm you, more of a foreman. How, uh, how, <laughs> well, if you're, if you're with the boss, I mean, but how do you, how do you navigate a primary? Because it seems like by, the Biden campaign is navigating this by, by, with an eye on those 70,000 that they would have to win in a general. How do you win them back? 
I, I mean, it, it, the Biden people would be well served by looking at Joe Crowley's race, looking at Mike Capuano's race in Massachusetts. The sleeper factor, um, which really comes down to the enthusiasm gap and things like that, is very difficult to connect. It doesn't necessarily surface on editorial pages and things like that. Um, that, to me, is, is going to be the real story when we get into October and November. Um, and that's and and that and that will be that will determine who will make it out of the the additional two tickets out of Iowa, assuming that one goes to the former right, vice president. You know president. what I got to say? We talked trade policy, we talked big tech policy, a little bit of foreign policy. I also snuck in some football references and some Bruce Springsteen references. <laughs> Little kid Kevin Cirilli is very grateful today. <laughs> Thank you to Roger See? Fisk, Brian Darling, Shannon Pettypiece, Liz Harrington for calling in, and, of course, Congressman Cicilline. That's it for me. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Business app. Check us out on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Have a great day, everybody. See you tomorrow. Same time, same place. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.